Welcome to Hebrews chapter 5, day 1. Hi, this is Pastor Tom. We're going to be walking through this chapter this week that's all about how Jesus continues to be better and better and better. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7 today. And just a very quick review of Hebrews up until now. Very brief. We've looked at the fact that Jesus is better than angels. We've looked at the fact that Jesus is better than Moses. Angels are good. Moses is good. Jesus is better. And in chapter 5, we begin a very strong look at the fact that Jesus is a better high priest. In fact, what we begin to look at here in this chapter is the central argument, the central encouragement in the book of Hebrews. It goes from here all the way through chapter 10 with exhortations and encouragements to growth all interspersed throughout. What does it mean to understand that Jesus is your great high priest? Well, this begins in verses 1 to 6. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to other gifts, and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So, Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. As you read through these verses, first of all, he gives the qualifications for being a human high priest. And out of that, the writer of Hebrews shows us that Jesus meets those qualifications and goes beyond them so that he's our great high priest. This shows that Jesus fits the qualifications for those who are trying to recapture the past and go back to some former high priest. Jesus is the great high priest, but it also shows that Jesus goes far beyond the qualifications for those who need hope for the future. What are the qualifications? They're very simple here. The high priest is appointed. He's appointed by God. He's appointed from among the people. He's appointed to represent the people Because of that appointment, he's able to deal gently with the people because of who he is. He's appointed by God. He doesn't take this glory upon himself. And the writer of Hebrews wants to make very clear that this is true of Jesus as well. He was appointed by God to this task of giving himself for us, of being the great high priest for us. And in these verses towards the end, he gives two great confirmations of the authority that's behind this appointment in the two verses that he quotes from the Old Testament. You are my son, today I have become your father, and you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You are my son, you are a priest. God appointed him. First, you are my son. It's the appointment of God in human flesh, God the son who's come to give his life for us. But he also says you are a priest. And he says a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If you haven't come across this in the Bible before, it's quite a name. Who is Melchizedek? He's mentioned two times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110, that's all. And Melchizedek symbolizes an Old Testament priesthood that's different than the priesthood of Aaron through the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek became a sort of a symbolic pointer to the priesthood which had no beginning and no end. You might remember that Jesus was of the the tribe of Judah. And some of those to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing were questioning how could he be a priest? He didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. All priests have to come from the tribe of Levi. How could he be a priest? (laughs) The writer says he's of the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest that has no beginning and no end of that order. We're going to talk a lot more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. I know you cannot wait. 
And in many ways, really, you cannot wait because the truth behind this priest is the truth of Jesus' forever love and forever power in every one of our lives. But for now, today, I'd like to go on to another aspect of what it meant to be a high priest and what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest. You find it in verse 7. Verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who would save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. The high priest was appointed from among the people, the human high priest, so they could identify with the people. He had weaknesses like we have weaknesses. And this reminds me that Jesus identifies with me. I mean, he is sinless. He doesn't have weaknesses like I do, but he became a man. And by becoming a man, he is able to deal gently. He's able to understand. Jesus is God and Jesus is also man so that we know that he understands. He understands what you're going through right now. Now, what does it mean for us to approach this mystery that Jesus became a man? There are three things in this passage It's not all that it means, but it is a depth of what it means. In this passage, we're going to read about Jesus' dependent petition, his reverent submission, and his learned obedience. Those three things. First, today, we're going to focus on his dependent petition. That's one of the ways that we see that he became a man. Jesus, when he came into this world, he limited himself. He didn't lessen himself, but he limited himself. He limited himself to depending on the Father. Now, in heaven, they're Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're equal. But he decided on this earth, in becoming a man, to limit himself to depending on the Father in prayer because he wanted to teach you and I that we have to depend on the Father in prayer. A dependent petition. And this verse says, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. This dependent petition with Jesus, it had emotion in it. That's something to remember when you're talking to God, when you're depending on God. It shouldn't be something dry, emotionless. He is your only salvation. He's your only rock. Jesus grew up in a Jewish culture that knew how to show emotion. When the Jews wept, it wasn't just this little tear trickling down the cheek. They wept openly. They wailed loudly. They even sometimes tore their outer clothes into shreds to express their grief. If you have an image of Jesus that rejects that idea of showing your emotions in that kind of a way, you've got the wrong picture of Jesus with a loud cry and tears. The power of emotion prompted Walter Hansen to write these words in his classic article, The Emotions of Jesus. Listen to this. He wrote, I am spellbound by the intensity of Jesus' emotions. Not a twinge of pity, but heartbroken compassion. Not a passing irritation, but terrifying anger. Not a silent tear, but groans of anguish. Not a weak smile, but ecstatic celebration. Jesus' emotions are like a mountain river cascading with clear water. My emotions are more like a muddy foam or a feeble trickle. Jesus invites us to come to him and drink. Whoever is thirsty and believes in him will have the river of his life flowing out from the innermost being. We are not to be merely spellbound, what we see in the emotional Jesus. We are to be unbound by his spirit so that his life becomes our life, his emotions, our emotions, to be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Now that quote gives us the example of the life of Jesus. And the example as we look at the life of Jesus is clear. Jesus did not deny his emotions. He denied himself by not bowing to those emotions. But he took his emotions very seriously. And he teaches us to do the same. He teaches us to act in ways that recognize the importance of our feelings. If you don't see the importance of expressing and dealing with your feelings, those feelings actually end up controlling your life. 
denial of your feelings gives them a power over you that God never intended them to have. It's only as you see the importance of your feelings and express them to God in prayer, independent petition, that you and I begin to act in ways that keep those feelings from running your life. So you talk to God like Jesus did. You depend on God like Jesus did. You depend on God with the emotion of your heart. I'm not talking about desperate prayers. I'm talking about dependent prayers. They're very different. I'm not talking about panic. We're talking about passion. It's the passion of hanging on to a rope if you're on the side of a cliff, if it's your only salvation with all that you have. You are not letting go of that rope. And that's the way that Jesus prayed. It teaches us something about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to live as a human being in this world. We want to depend on God with all that we have. Let's do that in prayer right now. In your heart, in your mind right now, in that place of hurt in your life, in that place of need in your life, in that place where you want to grow in your life, just depend on God with all that you are. If you're somewhere with nobody around and you want to say it out loud to him, say it out loud to him. Depend on God with all that you are. God, I need you. Without you, I am not going to have the strength that I need. God, I am depending on you. Sometimes I think I can depend on myself or someone else, but in the end, it is only you, only you that I can depend on. With your heart, with your emotion, depend on him. That's what it means to be like Jesus. We do depend on you right now, Jesus. We depend on you. You are our life. You are our strength. You are the one, the only one that can meet the need of our life. So we come to you and we depend on you. In your name, amen. Tomorrow we're going to look together at the reverent submission of Jesus. <laughs>